This time, we'll be asking, is Trump's loss a gain for Putin in Syria? We get the view from Washington and Moscow. Also, Brexit, what's the deal for defence? And Wills and Kate in Pakistan find out why it's not just about costumes and cricket. I'm Kate Chabot, and this is SITREP. President Donald Trump is facing increasing criticism in Washington over his decision to withdraw American forces from northeastern Syria. The US House of Representatives has voted overwhelmingly to condemn the move. 129 Republican members of the House voted with their Democrat colleagues to pass the resolution. But President Trump has hit back at his critics. So I view the situation on the Turkish border with Syria to be, for the United States, strategically brilliant. Our soldiers are out of there. Our soldiers are totally safe. They've got to work it out. Maybe they can do it without fighting. Syria is protecting the Kurds. But even allies like Republican Senator Lindsey Graham are not buying that explanation. He's making the biggest mistake of his presidency by assuming the Kurds are better off today than they were yesterday. That is just unbelievable. I can imagine if Obama said that, what Republicans would be saying now. So I'm going to say it with Trump. That is just uh, unfair, dangerous, and quite frankly, it's dishonorable for us to abandon uh, the Kurds. Well, let's get the view from Washington with Simon Marks from Feature Story News. Simon, this isn't looking good for President Trump if Republicans are no longer backing him. I think that's exactly the point, Kate. I mean, this is all happening at a time when ultimately President Donald Trump is desperately going to need the support of Republicans on Capitol Hill, particularly Republicans in the Senate, if his presidency is to be saved, because it is highly likely that he's going to be impeached in the House of Representatives. And then, of course, there will be a trial uh, in the Senate where the Republicans have a majority. And this Syria decision that he made entirely on his own, Sunday a week ago, giving President Recep Tayyip Erdogan of Turkey the green light, and even though he denies it now, he clearly gave him the green light in that late Sunday night uh, telephone conversation to go ahead and invade northern Syria uh, and said that he would pull US forces out of the way. This has created so much distress for Republicans up on Capitol Hill who do not want to go into their own re-election in November 2020 uh, or for some of them later than that, being branded as having been soft on national security and having sold America's Kurdish allies, the Kurdish militia, alongside whom US forces fought and died in the battle against Islamic State, having sold them down the river. On top of that, concerns about creating an environment in which Islamic State can now regroup, especially if Islamic State detainees uh, escape from previously Kurdish-administered camps, uh, or all of that creates a monumental problem for Donald Trump, and he doesn't personally seem to understand the gravity of what he's done. There was also a rather interesting meeting at the White House. What happened there? 
Well, it is very rare these days for the President of the United States to invite his political opponents to the White House. In former eras, we used to see that quite a lot. But the Democrats and the Republicans from Congress uh, were invited to uh, join a meeting with President Trump, the leaders of both parties. It all went uh, down the pan within about 20 minutes. Uh, Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House of Representatives, uh, the Democrats' most powerful figure in Washington, says that uh, they witnessed a presidential meltdown. Donald Trump was incandescent about the outcome of that vote in the House of Representatives. Massive majority delivered to Nancy Pelosi by President Trump's fellow Republicans. Uh, so there was uh, a great deal of acrimony at the meeting and now the blame game is underway with President Trump insisting it was Nancy Pelosi who melted down but senior Democrats coming out of the meeting and saying that President Trump called the Speaker of the House of Representatives a third-rate politician. It was pretty evident during that meeting that he's really feeling the pressure, not just of the Democrats' impeachment inquiry, but feeling the pressure of the fact that Republicans up on Capitol Hill, uh, almost to a man and woman, are unanimous in their condemnation of what he's done in Syria. And to bring it back to Syria, what do you know about the President's current view on the situation on the border between Turkey and Syria? Well, the first point to make in that clip, he, he claimed uh, that American soldiers have withdrawn and they're not in harm's way. Neither of those claims at this point is true. They are still withdrawing and they are very much in harm's way after the precipitate move uh, to pull them out without any kind of planning. As to the president's view of all of this, well, he's essentially said, I mean, he said as much yesterday here, that America now, in his view, ought to be washing its hands of the problem. He's welcomed the possibility uh, of the Russians moving in and taking up positions as they have indeed been doing. He <coughs> says this is Turkey's problem, this is Syria's problem, this is Russia's problem. They are much closer to the conflict. This is not America's problem. So at mm. a stroke, he has kind of redefined the worldview of the United States, brought it home and made it much more isolationist in nature. Not America's problem, yet Christopher Lee, our defence analyst who's listening to this, that the US Vice President and the US Secretary of State are in Ankara to today, um, supposedly meeting President Erdogan. What's going on? Well, there's not much to go on, is there, really? Because, I mean, they've got the Vice President, Secretary of State, which we would call the Foreign Minister. They've gone to see that have Turkey to give him hell, apparently, in terms to pull out. And there is their President actually saying, we're not interested now, we're 7,000 miles away. There's another side of this, you see, uh, and that I'm not sure that President Trump would have thought this through, but Syria, you know, is yesterday's war. Um, how President Trump reacts to it, etc., on what is happening at the moment and whether pulling out or not pulling out uh, is not going to get many votes in or lose many votes in Wisconsin. It is not that big a deal. I mean, if it was something like pulling out of a of a major country like you know, like Vietnam at the end of the war, that made a big political difference. But the consequences could, the consequences could be a big deal, couldn't they, to the president? No, I don't think they could. I don't think they could. Certainly, militarily, I don't think he, he, it matters what he would do, he would do about his allies in in the, in the Middle East so much. I think there's another side of this, and that is a very a, a distinction that President Trump may be tired. I mean, physically tired uh, of having to defend himself. And he's got the sort of character, perhaps, that that weakens even more and, and faster uh, because of that. And so the, the fact that you've got Republicans actually having a go at him over uh, Syria. Syria isn't the problem. It is the way that uh, a, a president after nearly four years 
uh, with lots of difficulties in his own life, um, actually handles it. And I think that's, that's more, mm. more of an important story. Simon, do, do you think um, Trump's Syria policy could cost him the election next year? I'm going to respectfully disagree with Christopher, actually. I mean, President Trump, in order to win re-election in November 2020, is going to need to keep every single vote that he won in 2016. There is such dismay within the military, particularly among those serving personnel who are now being pulled out of Syria, who feel that this is a massive betrayal of America's Kurdish allies. They've got to know the Kurds. They've worked with them. They've enjoyed their relationships with the Kurds, who feel that this is such a massive betrayal that when they return to their families across the United States and the dinner table conversation turns to the service that they've given the country and the views perhaps of members of their family that Donald Trump deserves four more years, I think those could end up being quite influential voices uh, around the table, not least because there is such a massive contradiction within President Trump's own administration over this. Only once in the last 10 days has President Trump given voice to the view that there should now be a cessation of hostilities, and yet... Vice President Mike Pence, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, sent over to Turkey to demand a ceasefire that President Trump doesn't seem to have any interest in. Military families and the military vote in November 2020 is going to be important and Syria could figure into that conversation. Simon Marks in Washington, thank you for your time today. So, if President Trump is no longer interested in what happens in Syria, what kind of an opportunity is this for President Putin? Russian troops are accompanying Syrian government troops, which are reported to have reached the border town of Kobani. Well, let's talk to Mary Dejevsky, who writes for The Independent. Mary, some might say President Putin has been masterly in his decision-making when it comes to Syria. Well, the interesting thing is that the uh, the way the Russian media is treating it, at least, and some Russian specialists, um, they're basically saying that this is, a, they call it manna from heaven, um, that Putin has, as it were, won the lottery, um, that this is something that has descended on Putin through really none of his own or Russia's doing, um, that it's a unilateral action by the United States, which has suddenly left Russia in what looks like a hugely more advantageous position. Now, I say looks like because I think there's probably room for some caution there. What's the caution? The caution is that Russia has to be very careful there. Um, At the moment, it looks as though it's going to be sort of sandwiched um, between Syria and Turkey. And it's hoping, I think, that it will claim a role as peace broker, chief peace broker, um, initially for Syria to ending the, the Syrian war and eventually further afield in the Middle East. But it's not as easy as that because the territorial complications, just where Russia is in the process of going at the moment to that border, is hugely contested. And if you Go, if, if you, as it were, transfer your attention to Russia, there is such a thing as Russia public opinion, um, and there is a lot of really wariness and caution um, in the, among the Russian public about getting involved any deeper into um, wars, conflicts beyond Russia's borders. Um, And that is just as unpopular in Russia as it is in the United States. And in some ways it's more unpopular um, because the shadow of the, what they see as the defeat and the shame of the Afghan war 
that still hangs quite heavy over Russia, even though, you know, it was the Soviet regime, it was different times, it was 30 years ago. Nonetheless, um, that is something that Putin has to be very, very careful of. Christopher Lee, how do you see this? I'm, I'm fascinated with the way that, that the Putin himself is seen in places like Washington and, let's say, Whitehall, and how he's handling this, and how... The, I still don't believe that the British, for example, know what to make of Putin. I've always thought that, you know, there he was a product of, 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 of uh, Petersburg, of Leningrad, of how it, how it turned out in that period 40 years ago, 20 years ago, um, of what happened after Yeltsin, etc. And yet we never quite figured out what makes him tick and what he's after. Does he want to be a big czar? Uh, is he doing this in the Middle East because he sees an opportunity which partly Russia saw also in the 70s about sort of having a big influence? And he's off to uh, Saudi Arabia. Now, this raises the stakes on how far you can influence. But I still think that we probably still not quite figure out what it is he wants or is he doing it because it, it, he expects that's the sort of thing that he thinks he should be doing and Russia should be doing. Okay Mary, can, can you answer any of those questions? <laughs> Well, I think that, I mean, I think there are two things that have motivated Putin pretty much from the beginning that still motivate him. Um, one is bringing order to what was pretty chaotic Russia and keeping the place together um, as a single country, which wasn't to be taken for granted in 2000 when he took over. The other thing is that I think increasingly he's seen himself as a sort of um, restorer and guardian of Russia's dignity after the great humiliation of the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, and I don't think he thinks of this in terms of restoring um, the Soviet Union, but in terms of putting, of giving Russia um, an international reputation and standing that he feels that it lost. Um, and I think maybe this is partly where Syria comes in, that he sees that as an opportunity um, to do that. Whereas, you know, I've seen an awful lot of coverage in the recent days that says, well, you know, the United States is um, Trump, the isolationist, is ceding territory all over the world, that he's um, he's given up on the Middle East um, and Russia is sort of marching in where, 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 where Trump has left the vacuum. I'm not sure that that's what Russia wants. I think it wants to be seen as a broker, um, an honest dealer, um, as a country that can get other countries together. Mm. Um, and to an extent... So far in Syria, it has sort of succeeded because for the last two years at least, it's been running something called the Astana pro process um, with Kazakhstan, um, chairing negotiations from time to tr time um, to try to end the conflict in Syria. So now, one of the reasons it hasn't had an, it didn't have much success with that was because the United States adamantly refused to be involved in the Astana process. So uh, is Putin the peace broker then? What do you think he will do next in Syria? Well, I, <laughs> I wouldn't be at all surprised if he was absolutely astonished to be in the situation that he's in and that a lot of Russian planning is um, having to be rather frantically revised um, because I would imagine they, insofar as they were planning for the post-conflict Syria, they were planning for mm. a Syria where there would still be um, American involvement, where America could be quite a stumbling block to um, Assad staying in power under, this, uh, under any sort of arrangement. 
arrangements. Um, so I think that um, there's probably quite a lot of work being done in the um, defence and foreign ministries in Moscow right now. Can All I right. just say that Putin has been around a long time when you think about it, 20 years compared with, say, 5, 10 years of Western leaders. And I, I actually wonder, heading towards 70, I wonder if we've seen the best of Putin. We will see. Thank you very much for your time, Mary Dijewski. Still to come, what does the new Brexit withdrawal agreement mean for defence? And Johnny Mercer tells us about the government's new office for veterans affairs. The Duke of Cambridge has hit a six on the cricket field in Lahore on day four of his royal visit with the Duchess. They've already met the Prime Minister Imran Khan on their 1,000-kilometre tour of the country and they're going to the same cancer hospital visited by Diana the year before her death. So what will this, the first royal tour in over a decade, achieve? Well, I'm joined by His Excellency Mohammed Nafiz Zakria, Pakistan High Commissioner to London. Your Excellency, good to speak to you today. What is the significance of this visit? visit at this time to Pakistan? No, thank you very much, Kate. Well, there is joy and happiness all across Pakistan on the royal visits uh, tour to Pakistan. The visit actually reflects the importance Britain attaches to its relations with Pakistan. Now, these relations are historical and its foundations actually rest and based on the goodwill at all levels, at the political level, at all political levels between the two countries. And they are further strengthened by the 1.5 million strong Pakistani diaspora in the United Kingdom. Yes. Uh, now, yeah, and this, this definitely, the exchange of the, at the leadership level, uh, the exchanges of the visit at the leadership level, particularly uh, the visits of the royal family members, is part of a long-standing tradition. If, if, I may, if I may reflect on it in, uh, very briefly, that you might remember Her Majesty visited Pakistan in 1961 and 97. His Royal Highness Prince Philip's visit uh, had been there. There had been visits during 90s. Uh, then Princess Diana also visited Pakistan. Prince Charles also visited Pakistan in 2006, accompanied by the Duchess of Cornwall. Mm. And now this visit has come as another milestone between the uh, you know, uh, two countries. Indeed. Uh, and you mentioned the historic relationships between the two, our two countries. Is there any hangover from the colonial days that might make this visit a problem for some people in Pakistan? Well, I think uh, well, how we look at it is that there's a huge goodwill for the royal family members in Pakistan. As you can see, you must have seen the coverage, heard about the joy which has emanated from the people of Pakistan and the warm welcome that has been extended to the couple. Uh, I believe that uh, they would be happy to see the heritage of uh, the British Times, which is there uh, in many uh, ways, uh, remains intact in Pakistan. And I, I believe they would be very happy to see that. There's a lot also on Pakistan's part to be shared and showcased to the royal couple that how far we have traveled in terms of development since mm -hmm. 1947. So I think these are the things. And then this is symbolically, this is a very uh, good visit from the point of view that it will also evince interest among the British people to visit Pakistan. And this isn't a political visit, but given the numbers of people travelling with the royal couple, the political importance is there because briefings will be filtered back to places like the Foreign Office and Commonwealth Office. What would you like them to be told about Pakistan? 
Well, I think uh, they were quite interested in the in learning about the culture of Pakistan, meeting the people of Pakistan at various levels, and that has been actually part of the program of the visit. And I, I believe you have uh, you have uh, seen how they have uh, they have mingled with the people at the grassroots, with the common people. And I think uh, this is what they need to see uh, that uh, how uh, what, what sort of love and affection is there in the hearts of Pakistani people in Pakistan for the British people, for the royal family. And what about the regional implications? Does it have any impact on bilateral relations with India? Does it make a difference to Kashmir, to Afghanistan? Well, I think uh, uh, we, we have to see our bilateral relations with any country, for that matter, is independent of our relationship with other countries. And of course, uh, we, we expect that uh, Britain has a role as, as, as world power, as uh, part of the permanent member of the UN Security Council, because, you know, that, con- that region is, uh, is uh, uh, the conflicts in that region have impeded the socio-economic uplift of that region. The most, it, it hosts the highest number of impoverished people of the world, in that part of the world. And I think uh, once the conflicts are resolved amicably, then there would be, uh, the, the socioeconomic uplift of the people of that region would be at a greater pace. And I think we see uh, the, the role of uh, the uh, you know, major powers like uh, Britain in this regard. So in that light then, would you like the British government to give more priority to Pakistan's relations with, with places like India and with Afghanistan? Well, let me put it this way. Uh, uh, the economic gravity of the globe has shifted towards Asian continent. And within the Asian continent, if you look at the geostrategic and uh, uh, geographic location of Pakistan, it is unique uh, because we are located at the confluence of four very important regions. And I believe that uh, we can act as a, 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 you know, hub of uh, regional, as, as a regional economic hub, an energy corridor for the entire region. Mm-hmm. And this is where we see a lot of opportunities for the friendly countries like Britain to avail those opportunities and increase the business relations and economic ties with Pakistan. And briefly then, to what extent does this visit tell the British government to think more seriously about Pakistan? Well, I think uh, this is a uh, very important business in this context. Uh, this, con- this visit will definitely will bring the uh, you know, policy focus towards Pakistan. Uh, and the policy focus means that it will also have, will have all the elements like economic uh, policy, will have the business policy, the visits uh, uh, of the people of uh, Britain to uh, visit Pakistan. There had been misperception about Pakistan because of the bad press. And I believe that this visit will definitely have a direct bearing on the perception which people have about Pakistan, that uh, it is incorrect to see Pakistan from that perspective. Pakistan is a market of uh, 220 million consumers. Pakistan is a country which is geographically and strategically located at a very advantageous position to reap the economic benefit which are actually uh, ready to be availed by the countries who are interested. Your Excellency, thank you for your time today. That was His Excellency Mohammed Nafiz Sakria, the Pakistan High Commissioner to London. Now, for the past three years, there's been a debate in the UK as to whether Britain's defence arrangements with the EU will remain after Brexit. The withdrawal agreement reached today between the EU and the UK makes for some interesting reading. Christopher, does it mention defence? Well, it does. And the importance that it 
it mentions it. it it's it mentions it twice. It mentions it obviously in the protocols to Northern Ireland, which of which there are eighteen articles, and saying that you've got to recognise, for example, uh, the, uh, the Good Friday Agreement has to be sustained, and it has to be sustained as a, as a with a, with a security background. But it's also the the in 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 the main body, there's this reference that to. Um, a, a defence, not necessarily in, in one article, but defence as a general subject, which which the United Kingdom has got to, or got to have the sort of uh, deliverance to be able to sort of take part to some extent. But you know, if you if you only got to go back earlier this year, and the United Kingdom sort of more or less said that leaving the United uh, e European Union uh, Community uh, security structure um, goes in hand with with, with Brexit, um, and that's that. that that can't be sorted out in this uh, leaving protocol. What that will take probably five, ten years to actually sort out. I mean, for example, if you had, uh, if you get a deal, which is you know, complemented by a vote in the in the House of Commons, if you get a deal, it's quite different from uh, what defence arrangements. If you had a question of no no deal, um, you would not take part in the thing called the fourth generation com fourth generation conferences when they're going to come up with some something on let's say a European Union force to go somewhere in the world to to act as a. A security unit, uh, the United Kingdom wouldn't be able to, wouldn't be able to see, see see the details of that, and so the United Kingdom is going to be a part, but we still have to remember that the most important defence organisation for Europe is NATO. All right, Christopher, stay with us. Now, a war veteran who was the most senior officer injured in combat in Afghanistan is to head up the government's new Office for Veterans Affairs. Colonel David Richmond will lead efforts to improve veterans' services, including mental health, employment and housing. Well, Veterans Minister and former Army officer Johnny Mercer has been speaking to our reporter, Laura Macon-Isherwood. So tell me then about the Office for Veterans Affairs. What are the main priorities for you? Yeah, look, uh, we've known for a long time in this country that actually there is some extraordinarily good uh, veterans care, but it's always been a challenge bringing it together. It's always been a challenge getting people to understand how to access that system. The Office of Veterans Care is going to try and pull it all together, right? Collaborate with charities, coordinate the statutory provision that the government already does, uh, because we should have and we can have a world-class veterans care system in this country. Uh, this Prime Minister is committed to that, and I'm going to deliver it for him. How much money have you been given? And is it enough? Do you want more? Yeah, so I, I've been given £5 million to set up the office and, and get it going. But we have a system in this country where uh, we look after veterans in the community. So actually, there's a hell of a lot of other money already going into this. You look at £22 million that's been invested into military mental health over the next 10 years. Uh, resource is always going to be um, a consideration, but it's by far and away not the only consideration in terms of delivering veterans care in this country. There is some extraordinary care out there, some amazing third sector provision. My job is to kind of stop everyone talking about what it looks like from the top and ask what is it like to actually be a veteran in this country in 2019, 2020 and make sure that it is the best place in the world to be an armed forces veteran. How do you do that then? Well, look, you can. Uh, you, you need to coordinate, and, uh, and uh, like I've said in the statutory provision, you need to collaborate um, with the charity sector. You need to start collecting data much better, and you also need to change the narrative around veterans that I think is, um, you know, is verging on the unhelpful in some areas. You know, 92% of people actually leave and go into education or employment. You know, actually, the vast majority of people are massively enhanced by their time in the military. So, look, we've got a job of work to do in all those different areas and uh, you know I can't wait to get started. 
and there's been an appointment made within the office. Who's heading it up and yeah. what skills do they have? Yeah, so David Richmond, I mean, he was the most uh, senior, uh, senior injured officer in combat in Afghanistan. Uh, he then went on to become De- uh, Director of Recovery at Health for Heroes. He's got a unique insight into um, this sector and uh, will be able to use all of his expertise to make sure that we get this to a place uh, where the Prime Minister wants us to get it to. There's obviously a lot of discussion about uh, historical investigations. You've been quite vocal on that and spoke about it quite passionately. Are you making any progress on that? We are making progress on this issue. Every day I work on this issue. Only this week I had a meeting with the Attorney General, the Northern Ireland Secretary of State, the Defence Secretary uh, of State. You know, that is one stream of work. There's another stream of work that's going on around the enhanced legal protections that Secretary of State Penny Mordaunt uh, brought in. The consultation on that actually closed this week. We'll be gathering those responses and looking to bring a bill forward in January, February of next year uh, to enshrine that into law. There is work going on this every single day. The Prime Minister has given us a very clear destination to get to of uh, ending the repeated and vexatious uh, prosecutions without any new evidence against our servicemen and women, and we will get there. So you're confident that's going to happen? I am confident that's going to happen. Veterans Minister Johnny Mercer there. Uh, Christopher, before we go today, lest we forget, Kim Jong-un, North Korea's leader, has issued a rather interesting new picture. He's up a mountain on a horse. A white stallion, no less. And he's got a brown overcoat on. What does a guy like him get up a mountain on a white... No one... Do you know where he was supposed to have been? Go on. He was supposed to have been having talks with the President of the United States about nuclear missiles. Uh, well, <laughs> when you've got Another, a horse to ride. <laughs> well, as, as they say in Turkey, yeah. when you head for a mountain, up yours, Trump. <laughs> That's all we have time for this week. Join the discussion on Twitter. Follow us at BFBS Sitrep. I'm Kate Chabot. Thanks for listening. Speak to you again same time next week. Bye-bye. <laughs>